Hello, and welcome to the Radio Democracy Podcast. I'm Jim Lutis. I'm Evelyn Farkas. And I'm Mark Jacobson. We're three friends who have dedicated our lives to public service and the study of national security and international issues more broadly. And we're worried. We're worried about the health of American democracy and the appeal of democracy around the world. So we're talking about it in this podcast. Each week, we do a deep dive into one issue and talk about the threats and hopes we see in the news that week. We're doing this in hopes that you'll be as concerned as we are and join us in fighting for democracy. It's 10.04 a.m. in New York, 5.04 p.m. in Kiev, and 7.34 p.m. in Mumbai. Whatever time it is and wherever you are, this is Radio Democracy. Evelyn. You're going to get us started this week with a conversation. I think about it's getting warm in here. I am. It's getting really warm on this planet. So today's topic is democracy and the climate crisis. And anyone who's listened to us at least once, and we, of course, encourage you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, knows that we are gripped by the threat to democracy. But while that is urgent, and, and of course, addressing it is something that we think everyone in the U.S. and around the world should be working on. Um, we also should be focused on one threat that is overwhelming, existential, and where time is running out. And that's the threat posed by climate change. The world literally is on fire and melting, and people around the world do not seem to be seized with any kind of urgency. And so I thought we, we could start today with a story. It's, it's the first chapter of a sci-fi book called The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. And in this chapter, an international aid worker, a young man named Frank May, he's in India in a town near Lucknow during a scorching heat wave. And the time frame I think is about 2030. I, I should have double checked that, but in any event, it's not that far into the future. And it's a heat wave where the humidity in the air is so high that the human body can't cool itself by sweating, right? This is something that scientists are just starting to bring into the public discourse. But there he is in India. It's 103 degrees Fahrenheit, 35 degrees, 35% humidity. The power goes out. So now the few available air conditioners have to use generators. And of course, there's a fuel shortage. As you can imagine, there now there are desperate people dying in the streets, in their homes. And as Frank is trying to save lives of the few people he can in his clinic, um, gunmen come in and they steal his AC unit. So the only thing left for him and those he's trying to help survive is basically to find water. He's got a little flask, he's got a little bit of water, but he's got to cool his body. They all have to cool their body. So the town has a lake and Frank basically makes his way to the lake with the people that he's, that he's trying to help. He eases himself into basically what is a a pot of boiling water. The lake is not boiling, but it's almost boiling. It's quite warm, but it still feels better than the air. And so he gets in with all these bodies. I mean, he just saw brown heads as he explains it, you know, when he, when he gets to the shore of the lake. And in that chapter, we just see Frank sitting in that lake with uh, joining everyone else almost submerged. In the third chapter, we find out that Frank survives, but millions of Indians died on that day and almost everyone in that lake died. The only reason he survived was probably that little flask of water he had. In the, in the 500 plus pages of the sci-fi book, Frank goes on to become an eco-terrorist. He basically says that everything that the world community is doing to address climate change, it's not enough, it's too gradual. 
and we need to take drastic measures like shooting down airplanes so people stop flying and using fossil fuels he starts you know calling for sabotaging coal plants and you know i'm not going to give away the ending of the book but i think this story what he paints this vivid picture unfortunately we're already seeing signs of it today in the newspapers and it, and it raises a question for all of us, you know, can democracy rise to this occasion? Can democratic, act, democratic governments take fast enough action to save us all? And, you know, right now, I don't think we can be super optimistic. We just had, you know, in the last couple of weeks, the sudden rainfall in Germany and other parts of Europe. We've had the floods also in China. And, you know, in Germany, we, a recent New York Times op-ed by a German a journalist, Anne Sauerbrey, she's marveling at the fact that the German politicians, I mean, they've been faced with this horrendous flooding that really was unprecedented, yet they're going on as if everything is normal. You know, they, all the language they're using about addressing climate change is the same. And she points out that this reflects the German electorate's lack of interest. So she writes, quote, though most Germans are concerned about climate change, they're hesitant to do much about it. And I guess that really gets us to where we are today, you know, and I, and I want to start with Mark, but I mean, if Germany is a democracy, the United States is a democracy, a lot of these countries, not China, <laughs> of course, are, are democracies, but how, what is the difference? How, how can democracy address climate change? Can it address climate change better than autocracies? What's the impact of climate change on this struggle between democracy and autocracy? So I'll throw it over to you, Mark. You know, uh, my, my answer, and I don't mean this to be glib, is democracies actually do a lousy job at handling climate change. And I, you know, I'm thinking about, you started with a really great work of fiction. Um, and I'm thinking about that uh, not so great movie, uh, The Day After Tomorrow. Remember from about 10 years ago? Um, 20 years ago. Is it, is it 20 years ago? Yeah. Getting old. Um, but anyway, you know, nothing's kind of happening and everything happens at once. And I have to say, watching the events of the last two weeks between Germany, China, uh, the, the fires, uh, now we're, you mm -hmm. know, today we're going through a second round of, uh, of uh, uh, triple digit uh, heat waves in the Southwest. You know, I keep thinking it all happens at once at least American democracy does not like to act until uh, it's too late, you know, whether it's the Pearl Harbor analogy uh, or, you know, well, we're not going to you know, do anything about infrastructure till bridge bridges literally start crumbling. And, and I worry that's what we have here. I worry that we, we keep getting these, you know, little warnings, subtle warnings from mother nature, then not so subtle warnings from mother nature, but we can't act in concert. And I wonder if a, an enlightened autocrat, uh, a green autocrat, uh, could actually be more effective. Well, you know, uh, so democracy. I, you know, we we the first the first month of this podcast, we spent a lot of time talking about threats to democracy from the right. But I think Mark has put his finger on actually a, a threat to democracy from the left. And I'm going to give you two quick quotes uh, from uh, uh, more than a decade ago. The first is from Peter Orzag, who was the director of the Office of Management and Budget in the first 18 months of the Obama administration. And he wrote in the New Republic, and I'm going to quote here, to solve the serious problems facing our country, we need to minimize the harm from legislative inertia by relying more on automatic policies and depoliticized commissions for certain policy decisions. In other words, radical as it sounds, we need to counter the gridlock of our political institutions by making them a bit less 
democratic. That's right. Peter Orzag. Now, the other voice on this uh, is James Hansen, who's uh, been a, a gadfly on climate change for a long time, formerly of NASA and Columbia University. Uh, at about the same time, he wrote uh, about his admiration for China's approach uh, and its, its brand of authoritarianism, uh, that it would make it possible for China to really lead on an important issue like climate change. He said, and I quote, I have the impression that Chinese leadership take, uh, takes a long view, perhaps because of the long history of their culture, in contrast to the West with its short election cycles. At the same time, China has the capacity to implement policy decisions rapidly. The leaders seem to seek the best technical information and do not brand as a hoax that which is inconvenient. Now, the, you know, the, the issue for me in all of this is that Climate change is real. Uh, it's going to alter human existence on this planet. It may be too late for us to do anything other than adapt rather than try to mitigate the worst of it. But are we willing to sacrifice democracy either no. for any of it? Right. But, but do you, the, the question is, it doesn't have to be zero or a hundred. Is, is there some sort of middle ground? I mean, well, we do have our Congress, let's stick with the U.S., has imposed at times pretty restrictive regulations when it's now what one thinks of restrictive depends on, on your politics but you know take a look at uh, what was done with chlorofluorocarbons you know back when when we were kids you know the hole in the ozone layer i mean maybe there's still a hole but I, if i understand correctly we can actually solve or did pretty good on that little problem um, carbon caps and, and, and trading doesn't go as far necessarily, but, but there is an approach. A democracy can do things. They just may be uncomfortable and in this current environment, politically untenable. Look, but I think, yeah, sorry, Mark, if I can bridge this and then I want to make a point about China. Um, the, you know, the, if you have what Orzag wants is an enlightened elite leadership that can convince the population to care or barring that just get through some sensible legislation to address our crises right um the chinese mob so i think that that is possible we just don't have those leaders right now or we don't have enough of them or they're not doing enough um i mean they haven't come to the fore yet or they haven't had their moment but but with regard to china i want to point out because if you look at the articles um the wall street journal has an article on the flooding in in um in china um, in Zhenjiang, I believe, if I'm pronouncing it right. And they, and you know, the Chinese have shrouded it in secrecy. Why? Because there may be a corruption element here. Part of the problem in terms of how the flooding manifested itself may have to do with infrastructure projects that overlapped and didn't, didn't provide for proper drainage. Now, of course, you know, given enough flooding, doesn't matter what the drainage is, as, you, as we saw in, in Germany. But I don't think that autocracies, and I don't think that China has a, a lock on this. In fact, I think if anything, these autocratic systems are so brittle, they try to clamp down, they don't want anyone to talk about the crisis and their, their inability to manage it, it could spell the end of a regime like Russia's or the, or the Chinese government, ultimately a, a real crisis of a, of a tremendous magnitude. You know, I, I, I think that the, 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 I think we almost need to repivot the frame uh, of this question. And, um, you know, I think that climate change is a threat to and a challenge 
uh, to a lot of the existence that humanity has carved out for itself. And instead of uh, thinking about un or less democratic ways of addressing it, maybe we need to view it and to start talking about it in terms as a challenge to democracy. This mm -hmm. sacred gift from our founders that we have bled and died for for 250 years. And if we view it in that context, then tackling the climate challenge is about preserving democracy. Because we know from enough international relations and from enough human history that when climates change, when disaster strikes, the appeal of authoritarianism, of providing the basic needs of society, whether it's through populism or something else, is going to you know, wither the, the, the support for democracy across society. So if we want to be serious about preserving democracy, I would argue, we've got to be serious about addressing climate change. Well, even more directly, resource shortages lead to conflict, right? I mean, we have thousands of years of this. Um, I, you know, one of my concerns, and, and maybe it leads to a, one of the potential solutions, is that, you know, it's hard for government to offer up uh, some sort of solution or approach when the, the population just doesn't recognize the threat or accept the threat. I mean, yeah, we can see this with all sorts of things going on today. Uh, but I wonder what, you know, Jim, I, I think about the, the field we're, we're currently engaged in. Is, is there a role for education here or are we too late? I mean, how do we get the, the community to start to understand that this is a, a challenge and a threat? Yeah, I, it, look, I, I, I don't think it's too late for education, but I do think the clock is, is, is running late. You know, we're, we're, we're at a point in, in our history where the threats to the, to the climate uh, are, are unmistakable. It used to be, you used to be able to have a credible debate about, you know, a once in a century storm, but now the frequency of once in a century storms is about every two years. Uh, and so it just takes a certain amount of common sense to say something has changed. Uh, it's going to threaten our livelihoods and our ways of life and even our political structures. You know, we've all worked in the national security community, right? And so we know that, that, that typically the national security community sees as threats anything that threatens lives, properties, economics, political systems, or ways of life. Climate change does all of those things. And if you want to defend the nation, if you want to defend humanity, you've got to do something about it. Right, but you've got to do it with other governments. I mean, this is the, the problem. I mean, we, we can't, we're doing a poor job protecting the United States. Now, I, I have to pause and put an asterisk here because the Congress is about to pass a you know, billion dollar infrastructure bipartisan package, which to some extent does address climate, the climate impact uh, on infrastructure. Or half trillion so dollar, I think. Or is it half trillion? Yeah, yeah. In any event, I, uh, it, it's significant and I wanna, so I have to asterisk it, but having said that, it's still too, too little, uh, arguably to some extent too late, too late for some people, right? And, and it's not global. I mean, globally, we need to have some way for, for governments to understand that they need to set aside their narrow parochial political interest and look to the international community. And how do you do that? I mean, how do you do that when Russia, for example, is going to have to shut down all of its oil and gas, you know, industry? That's how they make their money. But, but you have a good point. You know, it is an international problem. So imagine if everyone but Russia 
is doing something that 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 has a serious impact. I think, it, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but but Chinese and an Indian industry and and population are going to have really have a much greater impact uh, than than either we are going to have uh, Europe or the, certainly the Russians. Well, and I well, think it's. It's worth asking too, who stands to win from climate change? I had a, I used to teach a freshman seminar on national security issues. And I had a young man in my class four or five years ago who made as compelling a case as anyone that Russia doesn't really have a lot of interest in solving the climate change challenge because they stand to gain the most by a, an ice-free Arctic, by expanding areas in Siberia, which are now permafrost, uh, you know, easier extraction of oil and natural gas in various parts of Russia. Um, it was a, it was a compelling argument. I'm not saying it's the it's the gospel, but it was a compelling argument about Russia's potential to gain from climate change. But the pushback to that is what's happening in Russia right now. I mean, towns are sinking because the permafrost is is melting, and 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 again, I think if the rest of the world says no to fossil fuels, then China, then uh, Russia's in a in a tight position as well. But it's only um, the disloyal towns that are sinking in Russia, right? <laughs> but I mean, I, I think the other thing to, to point out that's really important, I talked about this, this, um, this, this humidity in the air. So they call it wet bulb. It has to do with putting a wet wick around a temperature bulb and the temperature of the wick doesn't go down. So I guess it's something if the, and I don't even know if I'm getting this right. But again, as I said, if there's enough humidity in the air, you cannot perspire and then you die. And the, the, the regions of the world where this is going to hit first uh, are the Middle East. We're already seeing some wet bulb temperatures in the Middle East, Mexico. Um, so there are specific, um, um, South Asia. So India, Pakistan, Afghanistan. Well, hey, this is the point in the show where uh, we got to leave that conversation aside. And we're going to do a quick round robin on uh, the issues that really caught our attention this week. Um, so, Mark, why don't we start with you on uh, your story of the week, as it were? Sure. My story of the week isn't tied to a particular article, but it's uh, what many are calling a coup in, in Tunisia. Uh, Tunisia's president, uh, Saeed, invoked uh, uh, Article 80 of his country's constitution, basically which allows him to take all necessary measures when the country's in a state of imminent danger. His argument is the broken economy and the struggling coronavirus responses, that's justification basically for him to dismiss the prime minister and suspend parliament. So that's it, there's an executive only, he's in charge uh, and he's been threatening to do this for a while. Now, why do we care? Tunisia is the only surviving democracy from the Arab Spring. I mean, it was the spark for the entire Arab Spring, uh, Spring across the region. And the opposition parties are saying, hey, US, say something, do something. We need your moral support and your leadership uh, to turn this back. And frankly, there have been crickets from the U.S. Um, all we heard was uh, Jen Psaki saying the U.S. was, quote, concerned. Um, we're kind of evaluating whether or not a coup had actually taken place, which can impact how much support we give the Tunisian government. And uh, Blinken uh, made a statement about encouraging uh, the Tunisians to adhere to the principles of democracy. Not much. Uh, it shows just how far we've fallen in terms of our ability to uh, support democracy across the world. Hey, Mark, why is it important for the United States to support democracy in a place like Tunisia? My, my view is our support for democracy abroad has three really critical pieces. The first one is on a more holistic international level, that we are still that beacon for democracy and peoples across the globe who seek to be free. So when we are able to 
clearly demonstrate that, look, we will support democracy in your nation across, the, uh, no matter where they are. This encourages people to be free. I think the second piece is a regional security piece. Um, you know, you, you take a look at the Maghreb and there still is instability. There's still uh, Al-Qaeda presence, uh, ISIS presence, and, and that instability, uh, you know, has a direct impact on the uh, emig emigration or the refugees flowing from uh, North Africa into Europe, which affects European security. So I think you have a regional component there. And then finally, um, I, th I think, you know, Tunisia is a country that can help our national security interests in the region. Again, a functioning democracy and a young democracy, uh, but a, a country that, that wants to figure out how do we have an intelligence community that has oversight? In other words, we realize that we can't have intelligence communities running amok. It's a great example for other countries in the region to include down the street, uh, you know, Egypt, uh, the other direction, Morocco, that are all having their own challenges and can look to Tunisia as an example. That's an important issue. Hey, Ev, what's your uh, your story of the week? Well, you know, I actually, um, it's not a story so much. I just really, um, I want to draw attention to Jennifer Rubin's editorial in the Washington Post um, regarding the January 6th uh, Select Committee. This was a, an opinion piece that she posted on, Ju I don't even know what day, July 28th. And um, she basically says, this is how democracy is supposed to work more or less, that this, because the, frankly, the Republicans that Kevin McCarthy would have wanted to appoint to this bipartisan commission were not appointed. Those who are spreading the false lies of Donald Trump, the truth was what we heard at that hearing. And there were, she points to the very emotional, visceral, sincere reactions of Adam Kinzinger, Representative Adam Kinzinger, Representative Schiff and others. Uh, of course, the four law enforcement officers who, police officers who testified were compelling. And, you know, she, she, she says, this is, this is how it's supposed to work. And I think she's right. And it's unfortunate that we don't have real Republican party buy-in, but, but Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi did manage to find two Republicans who agreed that the truth must be told. And I think we will start to learn more about what actually happened with the attempt to overturn our democracy on January 6th. And people will be at least shamed and hopefully held accountable. So I, I wanna draw attention to her opinion piece um, which is not a story, but it's a, but it's a good news, um, kind of a clapping of the hands for, for the House of Representatives and for that particular commission. Well, I, it, it was, the, those hearings were as compelling a thing as I've seen in some time. And the emotion I thought was, was authentic and real. I'm, I've also got a story from the July 28th uh, uh, Washington Post and another column by Margaret Sullivan, who uh, is a regular writer for them. On, uh, she covers the media, basically, as a columnist. Uh, and she calls out what she describes as the both sidesism of, uh, of, of, of Washington, D.C. political reporting, uh, that if we've got one political party that is trying to undermine American democracy and one that is trying to support American democracy, you can't, you can't equate them. Uh, and you can't report that each side is equally legitimate because they're not, because one is swinging a, a pickaxe 
at the at the at the base of American democracy. She says that reporters and 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 the political media in general can change that by getting rid of the inside politics frame and replacing it with a pro-democracy frame. And she offers three specific suggestions. And I want to quote them really quick. She says, quote, stop calling the reporters who cover this stuff political reporters. Start calling them government reporters. Stop asking who the winners and losers were in the latest skirmish. Start asking who is serving the democracy and who is undermining it. And finally, she says, quote, stop being savvy and start being patriotic. And I I got to tell you, (laughs) I I thought this was a brilliant and compelling uh, piece in the post uh, and uh, something something worth us all considering. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, Jennifer Rubin also talks about the balance and the fact that the police officers, one in particular, constantly, you know, consistently referred to the coup attackers as terrorists. And so the language is also important. She also said, of course, the Department of Justice should now take this as a clarion call for investigation. But I think um, Margaret Sullivan's framing is really, really smart because the media has devolved into this kind of everything is a competition as if both sides have parity. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, that's where we've got to leave it today. We are out of time. Uh, But we hope that you've enjoyed this latest episode of Radio Democracy. subscribe, like, tell your friends, tweet about it. uh, And we hope you'll join us again uh, next week. It's 1034 a.m. in New York, 534 p.m. in Kiev and 804 p.m. in Mumbai, whatever time it is, wherever you are, this is Radio Democracy. Democracy.